just so happy that I'm here in this church. I love this church. I love the people, and I love our pastor. Um, because he really does care for us. You know, he had been on this trip to Ecuador, and I knew he was tired and he was busy. And do you know he took the time to text me happy birthday? And I'm like, who does that? And then, speaking of birthdays, I just want to take time to um, honor somebody who, without this person's prayers, I wouldn't be standing up here. And that's my mom. She's here with us tonight, and today is her 94th birthday. And she gave up her birthday celebration to come here tonight, so we're going to celebrate tomorrow. Thank you, Mother. On Saturday, November 5th, I sat in the uh, emergency room at Baptist with my husband, waiting for test results, and I heard the Lord say, mid-course correction. And later on, I asked Larry, I said, what's a mid-course correction? He said, I think it's a term from NASA. So I went home and I looked it up later, and it said, it's a navigational correction made in the course of a ship, airplane, rocket, or space vehicle at a point somewhere between the beginning and end of the journey. Mid-course corrections are made when if the vehicle continues on its present path, trouble danger, or destruction lie ahead. And I believe that's the word the Lord wants me to bring to you tonight. You know, when I first was asked to speak, I sat down and I had this word, and I sat down and I got all my historical references together, and I looked up the scripture. You know, I had three Bibles, two concordances, and I sat down and I started to write, and it just wasn't flowing, but I kept on writing anyhow because I knew I had to bring this word. But, you know, it was like walking in mud. Has that ever happened to anybody? You tried to write it out, and it just isn't happening. So I said, Lord, you gave me this word. Why isn't it flowing? You know, I like to get prepared ahead of time. I've known for three weeks that I've had to do this, so I wanted to be prepared a week ahead of time and have it all down pat. And as I sat there asking the Holy Spirit what to do, I felt compelled to reread my devotional. And my devotional for uh, November 20th said this, I am pleased with you, my child. Allow yourself to become fully aware of my pleasure shining upon you. You don't have to perform well to receive my love. In fact, a performance focus will pull you away from me towards some sort of Phariseeism. This can be a subtle form of idolatry, worshiping your own good works. It can also be a source of deep discouragement when your works don't measure up to your expectation. And I couldn't get that out of my head. You know, that God was pleased with me and it wasn't based on my works. I mean, I knew this on an intellectual basis, but, you know, it just hadn't gotten into my soul And I thought about why this sermon wasn't flowing, you know? Wasn't I doing what God told me to do? And then I thought, well, maybe there's something else at play here. Could it be that my concern about my performance was getting in the way? Who was I trying to impress or please? My audience or God? And then God brought to my remembrance a very painful incident that occurred when I was a 
just a young teen. I might not have even been quite a teen. I might have been about 12. My father was president of the General Baptist State Convention of New Jersey, and he was addressing this large body of ministers and church leaders from all over New Jersey. And it was suggested that I sing. And I'd never sung in public before, so there was much rehearsing to be done. And I think I must have rehearsed about a month. And I had that song down pat. Finally, the big day came, and I stood in the wings of this huge stage, and I heard myself being introduced. And when I walked out and looked at that huge audience, I was terrified. I heard them play the introduction to my song, but I felt like I couldn't move. My tongue was stuck to the roof of my mouth. My throat was clenching. I felt sick to my stomach. All I wanted to do was run. They gave me the introduction again, and I finally croaked out the notes, but it was terrible. It was really bad. And I was prepared technically, but I was not prepared emotionally for that experience. And even now, talking about it, 60 years later, I can remember the shame and the embarrassment. And even though my dad tried not to show it, I know he was embarrassed too. And at that point, I determined that I would never sing or speak in public again. And God laughed. But I meant that. And suddenly I realized as I'm trying to put together this well-crafted, well-researched message, I was being affected by that embarrassed, shamed young girl who was still struggling to be perfect. That's why the words wouldn't flow. I want to take a bit of time to talk about perfectionism. You know, there's a book called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it's used by psychiatrists and other people in the mental health field to diagnose and label uh, personality and other mental health disorders. And the DSM says that perfectionism is a personality disorder driven by the need to be accepted and cared for. People affected by this disorder try to live up to an internal idea motivated by fear as to how they are perceived by others. Perfectionism correlates with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, better known as OCD, and other mental health problems, including suicide. There's also a rigidity about the way perfectionists um, do things. They find it very difficult to delegate authority unless someone does it exactly the way the perfectionist wants it done. You remember Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way? That's the perfectionist anthem. You know, and as I thought about that, yeah, where he did it his way, where is he now? I think most of us struggle with some mild form of perfectionism, but our God has given us the prescription to deal with it. Isaiah 53, 6, we have to recognize that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. Psalm 18, 30, recognize that only God is perfect. As for God, his way is perfect and his law flawless. Psalm 18, 32, it is God that arms you with strength. 
and makes your way perfect. Isaiah 26, 3. And God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is fixed on him because you trust in him. So that's it for perfectionism. That was just a little aside. Now, back to why the words wouldn't flow. As I stood in my kitchen putting on putting my finishing touches on the Thanksgiving meal, the Holy Spirit said, start over. And I immediately thought, start over? You mean I've wasted all this time working on this thing, all this time you gave me this word. How come I can't just use it the way it is? Didn't you give me the word? He said, yes, I did. This is your mid-course correction. So I started over, not having a well-laid-out plan about how to present this word. And I began to write as the Spirit directed me. You know, when God gives you a word, sometimes you think, of course, that makes sense. Or, I understand, Lord. But we often don't know what God means when he gives us the word or even what the word relates to. I knew he'd given me this word this night, but I didn't know he was going to demonstrate what it was while I was in the process of preparing it. Mid-course corrections can be difficult because they don't go along with our intended course of action. All of us have experienced a mid-course correction in our lives or we wouldn't be sitting here. Our first mid-course correction came probably when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Sometimes when we hear the word correction, the first thing we think about is punishment or rebuke. But another meaning of correction is bringing into conformity with a standard, and the standard for our lives is the will and authority of Jesus Christ. Humanistic wisdom and reasoning is based on individual satisfaction and benefit as its highest goal. In other words, how is it going to make me feel and how much money am I going to make? And this is a very poor basis for determining what's true, false, worthy or unworthy. No matter how convincingly and well-intentioned our actions and ideas may be, if they're not in line with God's standards, they're likely to lead to unexpected consequences and disasters. Doing things our own way is the definition of sin and will lead to spiritual, spiritual death. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship is to give ourselves up, to do it God's way, not our way. And it's not necessarily a sacrifice to worship in church here where we've all gathered together just for that purpose. But real, true spiritual worship is taking it to the street. It's how we live in front of other people. Our lives should be a testament that glorify and exalt God. And that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I think as humans, our flesh wants self-control rather than spirit control. Spirit control led Jesus into the wilderness. Spirit control led him to the cross. And I don't know about you, but my first reaction to anything that's going to cause me pain, discomfort, inconvenience, or embarrassment is to try to work out my own solution for getting out of it. In 1991, I made a vow to the Lord. Larry and I were living in California looking for our first home. We found the house we wanted, but it was out of our price range. And I made a vow. I said, Lord... If you give me this house, I promise I will always keep a room for anybody 
that you send to me. The Lord gave us the house. First person he sent was two months later when my grandmother came to visit for Christmas. And she had a stroke. And she ended up staying with us until she went home to be with the Lord. And that wasn't a problem. It was like, Lord, that's a blessing. You know, it didn't, you know, everything didn't go smoothly because, you know, we were raising teenagers at the time and I was working, Larry was working. But it was a blessing to take care of my grandmother, you know, and it's like, I can do this, Lord. I can keep this vow. Oh, but the next one he sent. Our pastor in California came up and said, there's a young woman here in our church who has a lot of serious medical conditions, but she also has a very negative attitude, and she has been kicked out of every nursing home in the area. She is persona non grata. Nobody will take her. Do you think she could stay with you? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm trying hard not to kill these two teenagers I've got, and you want me to take in a woman who's sick, and nobody likes her, and nobody wants her, and you want to give her to us? And I fixed my mouth to say, oh, no, I don't think so. And I heard the Spirit say, remember your vow. <laughs> sure, Pastor will love him. You will take her. Well, we did. We took Essie into our home. And she lived with, with us until we moved, to, uh, moved here to uh, Florida. And you know, she was blessed. We were blessed. God blesses you when you honor your vow. You know? Over the years, we've had a wide variety of people come to our home. We've had a, from a mother with her son who was in an abusive situation to a family of six with one on the way. Now, that was, that was interesting. Um, but we had one man who came to live with us who had terminal cancer, and he was in a nursing home. Hospice was already involved. And guess what? God healed him. And he didn't want to be in the nursing home anymore. So we said, come on, you can come live with us. And I think our idea at the time was uh, he'll come live with us. We'll help him get on his feet. He'll find himself a job. He'll move on. And his family would get involved, yada, yada, yada. Well, that didn't happen. You see, his family had been waiting for him to die. They had sold his car. His wife was looking forward to being a widow. And when he had the audacity to get healed, his family didn't want him back. And it seems we were stuck with him. So we, we explained that since God had healed him, you know, he probably had a plan for his life, so it would be good to make some arrangements so he could move on. And that's when we saw the ugly side. We knew why his family didn't want him back. Because it was like he was going to stay in our house. Let's just say the day came when we just put him in the car, took him down to a hotel, paid for a couple of nights stay and say, be blessed, have a good life. But we heard from him, you know, but several months later he was living in New York and doing well. Now you might have noticed at the beginning of this exercise I said, we invited him to stay with us. God did not send him. So even though our intentions were good and we met well and we were doing what the Lord, we thought the Lord wanted us to do, we weren't. We weren't in God's will. My vow had been to the Lord that we would take anybody he sent. We chose this man, and that's the difference. 
We were following our own way, and this was a mid-course correction for us. We learned that this was God's ministry, and unless he sent the purpose person to us, we were going to be in trouble. It's all about doing his will, not our own. You know, I'm, like you, I fear the Lord, so I'm not going to get up here and say anything about thus saith the Lord unless I've really heard from the Lord, because you get in big trouble for that. And someone who got in big trouble for that was Balaam. We meet Balaam in Numbers in the Old Testament when the Israelites are making their way onto the Promised Land and they have just uh, wiped out the whole army of Og, king of Bashan, and they've wiped out the Amorites, and now they've got their sights set on Moab. And there was a king of Moab, his name was Balak, and he was afraid. And Numbers 22 to 6 says, Now Balak, Son of Zippor saw that all Israel, all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab, no, and Moab, and was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river in his land. I'm going to stop there and tell you about Pethor. It wasn't like, you know, he lived in Orange Park, you know, and, and, and Balak was in Green Cove. You know, no, Pethor was a long way away. And so they had to send quite a distance to get this man. And what Balak said was, I want you to come put this curse on these people, you know, because they're too powerful for me. And if you curse them, because I know... You are a prophet, and that those you bless are blessed, and those whom you curse are cursed. And verse 7 says, the King James Version says, And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they spoke to him the words of Balak. And you see, that's just divination. Balaam wasn't a real prophet of God. He believed in a whole bunch of gods, including the God of Israel. So what he was also called was a priest diviner. Now, to me, you, you can't mix the two. You know, you cannot mix the word of God with a little bit of something else and call it anything except something from the pit of hell. So Balaam was wrong as two left shoes. So anyhow, these people go to him with this, this money, and tell him that Balak wants him to come curse the Israelites. Okay, Balaam knows enough about the God of Israel to figure, well, this is maybe who we should talk to, you know? So the elders find Balaam and tell him that King Balak wants to curse him. And, and Balaam tells them to spend the night with him and that in the morning he will give an answer after he talks to the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound spiritual? He's going to consult God. But his reference to the Lord my God is not necessarily referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Balaam was a man motivated by fame and money rather than righteousness. And that night God came unto Balaam. Now, this God came unto Balaam. He didn't come unto Balaam as a result of his prayer. He came unto Balaam just like he came unto... He, that means unexpectedly. He showed up unexpectedly, just like he 
showed up. Um, he came unto Abimelech in a dream, warning him that he was a dead man if he touched Abraham's wife. He came to Laban in a dream that when he was after Jacob, you know, after Jacob left him and then um, Laban realized after three days Jacob probably wasn't going to be working for him anymore. And so God came to Laban and told him not even to speak harshly to Jacob. So this is how God came to Balaam in a dream, in a way that he'd done with other pagan people. So when God appears unexpected to Balaam and asks, who are these men with you? It's not like he didn't know. That's kind of like when you find your child or your grandchild doing something really wrong and you say, just what do you think you're doing? You're not asking for information. You already know. So Balaam tells God about the request these men have made of him and conveniently leaves out the part about the money. And God tells Balaam not to go with them. And furthermore, don't curse these people because I've blessed them. So Balaam appears to obey and sends the men on their way. But Balak isn't the kind of guy who takes no for an answer. So he gets some more dignified people to send to Balaam with a bunch more money and says, you know, I want you to curse these people. Please come here. So Balaam goes back to God and asks again. And, it, and this isn't the way the scripture says it, but this is pretty much what, what it says and implies. God, there's this group of men who have asked me to, to curse these people. Can I go with them and, and do that? And if I'd been God, I'd been, what part of do not curse these people are you having difficulty with? But God permits Balaam to go with these men, saying, just say what I tell you to say. But just because God permits something doesn't mean that he likes it. Sometimes we make up our mind to do something, and we think, well, God's going to bless it. No, if it's wrong, he's not going to bless it. He may look like he's going to be silent, and you're getting away with it, but no, that's not the way it is. So we find out that God is very angry. So this is where Balaam's mid-course correction comes in. I just want to read you a little bit about this. This is in Numbers uh, 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled. Because Balaam went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now Balaam was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went to the field. And Balaam struck the donkey and turned her onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Now, wait a minute. Balaam is supposed to be this superstar uh, diviner. But the donkey saw the angel and Balaam couldn't? Obviously, he, the donkey was a better diviner. Um... And the other thing is, can you imagine how this must, must have looked? You know, these men that Balaam was going back to King Balak with, you know, this is a whole procession of dignified men, you know? And then there's the servants and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, Balaam's donkey starts act, acting up and he has to beat it. And he probably looked around and asked him, you know, what's he doing? Then it happens the second time and Balaam gets hurt. 
you know, and sometimes, you know, like when you fall down or something like that, the first thing you do is look around and see who saw you, you know, and slip on the ice or something, you look, you know. Well, that's kind of how Balaam was, you know, and he was getting embarrassed. Then the word says, Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me three times? Now that would have caught my attention right there. The donkey that I'm riding on is talking to me. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. He's arguing with a donkey. Can you imagine? I don't know whether the people with him could hear this, but can you imagine him standing there going like this and all this? They're probably thinking, this guy has lost his mind. I wish, Balaam says, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And then skip down to verse 11. The angel says to Balaam, the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. He would have killed the, quote, prophet and let the donkey live. You know, that's how we are sometimes when we don't listen to what the Lord is saying to us, when we don't heed those first course corrections, mid-course corrections. I remember when um, God gave me a mid-course correction and I didn't recognize it. It was, um, he gave me a word, woke me up in the middle of the night and said, gormless. Anybody here know what gormless means? Nah, I didn't think so, neither did I. I went, got up, went to the dictionary, and found out it's an old English word for incredibly stupid. Now, that should have got my attention. The Lord used old English to tell me what I was doing was incredibly stupid. Did I listen? Not at the time, but that's another whole story. Okay, let's look at another person who did heed, me, heed God's mid-course correction. And that's Paul. When we first met him, his name is Saul. And I'm not going to go through all this history that I've got here because you already know it. I want to skip down to um, Acts 9, 1-2 where it says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any of them there who were in the way, whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And we know that it was on the way to Damascus that God gave Saul one of the most spectacular mid-course corrections in history, one that has resonated through the ages and will continue to do so till Jesus comes. And it begins with the word, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? We know the rest of the story. Saul's name was changed to Paul. Scales from his eyes, and he saw Jesus Christ, the son of the God he thought he had been serving. He wrote the majority of what we know is the New Testament. 
and innumerable people were saved in his day and continue to be saved because he heeded God's mid-course correction. And now, by the mercy of God, I believe America is receiving a mid-course correction. I'll be honest with you. I didn't so much vote for Donald Trump as I voted against Hillary because in I can't see in any alternate universe where I would have voted for Hillary as dog catcher. So, now that's the truth. But my prayer had been that I would put in, that God would put in place the person that he deemed best for our country. I believe what Psalm 75, 6, 7 says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor the west, nor the south, but God is the judge. And he putteth down one, and setteth up another. And I believe that God has raised Donald Trump for such a time as this. And my prayer is that Donald Trump will be the pencil in God's hands as he writes his will upon our nation. I pray that Donald Trump will no longer operate in his own strength, that he will be humble before God and seek direction for every, every decision he makes. My prayer is that he will be compassed about by godly men and women of God who will give him wise counsel. I pray that we will see the youth of America rise up and not take the streets in protest, but they will be answering the call Almighty God has placed upon their lives. I pray that we will not think it strange when we see children coming to the altar because they hear the voice of the Lord. I pray that we will see sons, daughters, grandchildren overwhelmed and delivered by the Holy Spirit running back to the church. And there they're going to find us, the men and women of God, with arms open, with love, to receive them. I pray that the Holy Word, Spirit will do such a work in each of us that moving in the gifts of the Spirit is not an occurrence but a lifestyle. I pray that we'll become more and more like our Savior, seeking His will above all else. And I believe that First Assembly has been in a mid-course correction for some time, not because we were going the wrong way or anything like that, but we're in a mid-course correction because of answer to prayer. It began when we had to leave our Orange Park location. You know, it wasn't an easy thing to do. We didn't know where we were going. And, and some people didn't want to go with us, and not everybody made the transition. But praise God, we've got a shepherd who knows and listens to the voice of God. And here we are. Our name has changed. Our location has changed. And as I said, mid-course correction can be difficult. But just because God told you what to do and is leading you doesn't mean that there's not going to be problems. God didn't promise us no problems. In fact, he told us that in this world we would have tribulation. But to be of good cheer, because he's overcome the world with all his problems, troubles, and tribulations. And this past month, I've been so aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit back in the prayer and up here at the, at the altar. You know, there's a time that I call after church. That's after the church has been you know, formally dismissed. But people kind of hang around and the Spirit of God is moving up here and he's moving in the pews. And, and God is moving not just so we can feel his awesomeness and the joy and holiness that he brings with his presence. He's moving because he's changing people. God told me last year, clean houses if you're moving. And I thought it just meant our house in Green Cove Springs. And even though Larry and I have no intention of moving, we 
started doing that. Now I realize that this was a word for us, our church. The presence of the Holy Spirit is here to help us clean our spiritual houses, to get rid of some things that we may like, and we've gone comfortable with them, but we can't take them with us on our journey. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, he told them, don't take any money with you. Don't carry a traveler's bag with an extra coat and sandals or even a walking stick. Now, all of these things like, sound like basics to me. But God, Jesus told them not to take them on this journey. I believe he is telling us here at First Assembly to get rid of those things that we think we need. The things we think are necessities. And if we will be faithful to do this, we will find that the Holy Spirit will not only supply our need, but will be do abundantly above all we could ask, think, or expect. He's taking us somewhere. We may not know where we're going. He's taking us by a different route than the one we thought we were following. But I believe the destination is the same. It's about bringing the lost to him. Our job is to bring them. He'll save them. And we know that this is not a simple task. There are people we've been witnessing to, praying for, inviting to church for years, and we haven't seen any change. Some of them don't even want to talk to us anymore. They won't answer our telephone calls. But we need to stay on our knees, seeking his will as never before, asking him what things he wants us to let go of. And I'm not talking about sins and bad habits. We don't need a revelation from God to know about when we're in sin. That, that's not, we're not there. Hopefully we are all, we're behind, beyond that. But to let go of the things that we have just become accustomed to. Things that there's nothing wrong with them, but that we cannot take on the journey that God's taken us on. Rob, if you will come up and start playing. God needs to show us, give us a revelation of what it is we need to leave behind. This is a holy, special time for our church. And I'm so thankful to be here in this place at this time to be part of it. And those of you who sense this mid-courts correction... You know, I invite you to the altar. I know I've run over just a little bit. But I think we need to come and, and just do business with God. Because the Spirit of the Lord is here in this place. And he loves us. Not because of our performance. Not because of any title. Not for any of those reasons. But he loves us. And he wants to do something in our lives so that we can reach the lost. Because people are dying and the gates of hell are clanging shut on them. And there is no do-over. So, church, come and seek the Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, come and change us. Come and deal with us, Holy Spirit. Show us what we're supposed to leave behind that we cannot take with us on this journey. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit.